Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. Chapter 5, uh, getting into saving. If at this point we've been talking about getting out of debt, we don't get out of something in order to get without also getting into something else. Now, if you've made it to this point in the process, and, and I, I do mean this point in the process, not just this point in the seminar, uh, listening for two and a half hours, as beneficial as that is, does not, <clears throat> does not bring us to this point in the process. But if you've gotten to the point where you are turning the corner with your debt snowball, then you have created an incredible amount of momentum. You have unlocked an incredible opportunity for your family. And that that opportunity is either going to do incredible good or incredible bad. Because money's a neutral thing. Um, Money is neither good nor bad. It can be used for either one. And so sometimes we think, you know, rich people, they like got it made. Uh, they got, you know, they've saved money. Uh, they got no problems. Um, I've talked with enough rich people uh, in terms of counseling. They, they have just as nasty, if not more nasty problems than folks who don't have money. Uh, they have really bad midlife crisis. Their relationships get just as broken and conflicted. And oftentimes, even though that they have great assets, Uh, There can be plenty of people with great assets who accomplish very little of eternal significance. Whereas you can take somebody who is in a lower or middle socioeconomic status and they can have great peace, great unity in their relationships, and they can do an incredible amount uh, that has eternal significance. And, And so we, as we begin to turn this corner, we want to make sure that this works for us. Uh, and not against us. It almost reminds me of a game that I played uh, when we were kids at the the public pool. Uh, This was before they had nearly as many regulations at public pools as they do now. Uh, But we would play a game, we would run, and it was a race to go as fast as you could to the edge of the pool, but you had to stop without falling in. Uh, And so it wasn't just about speed, it was about speed and control. And then you'd like slap the other guy and make him go in, and they'd get out and argue, and then the lifeguard would get upset, and that's why they made up all the regulations. Uh, it has nothing to do with the safety of children. It has to do with the peace of mind of the lifeguard. Uh, but as we create this kind of momentum, we want it to work for us and not cause it to crash us in the pool. One more illustration just to, to set our minds here in the beginning. I would say we make a budget for the same reason that we buy a plane ticket. That's to get somewhere. Now, it's not always as clear when we make a budget as when we buy a plane ticket. When I buy a plane ticket, I I know where I'm going. But I I don't make a budget just to follow a rule. I don't make a budget just because I'm supposed to. I make a budget because I want to get somewhere. And, And in this final chapter on using your treasure to transform your heart, I want to talk about two types of freedom that I think we make a budget in order to get there. One is financial freedom, 
uh, and the other is spiritual freedom or character. And we'll start with the financial freedom. Uh, David Platt gets us started there. He says, we will evaluate where true security and safety are found in this world. And in the end, we will determine not to waste our life on anything but uncompromising, unconditional abandonment to the gracious, loving Savior who invites us to take radical risks and promises us a radical reward. Now, uh, when, when we start to talk about generosity, um, it can often come across as if saving and generosity were polar opposites, as if they were magnetized and you couldn't bring the two together. Um, as if saving was greedy. I want to take a moment to pull those things apart because we're going to get to where hopefully I encourage you to the kind of generosity that David Platt pushes us towards. But I don't want to vilify that aspect of financial wisdom that Scripture calls saving. And so here's the difference between saving and greed. Uh, greed is something that we do where we accumulate wealth in order to be independent from God. I don't want to have to rely on God, anybody else. I want to be self-sufficient, self-sustaining. I got this. Saving is when we accumulate money to be freer to serve God. Greed is when we claim what we did as our accomplishment and we take on an identity of superiority. I did this, you should have done this, I'm better because I could pull this off and it makes me feel better than. Saving is something that we do where we recognize that we are receiving a blessing from God to both enjoy and share. And, and so sometimes if we don't pull those things apart, then we begin to think the only way to be godly with our finances is to take risk. To live on the brink of being one kind of financial hardship away from being in a really hard spot because if I save more money than that, then I'm being selfish. And I hope as we go through this, you will hear how saving and generosity harmonize. Now, as we talk about saving, uh, I'm going to hit three types of savings uh, that I think are wise and appropriate. Uh, the first is three to six month savings. And that's just what it sounds like. Whatever I make, whatever comes home into our house on a regular basis, I want three to six months worth of that much money in a savings account with my emergency fund. So if I make $3,000 a month, three months would be $9,000, and six months would be $18,000. So I would take that much to put with my $1,000 emergency fund, and that goes in that account. Um, and this is where we put a bit of buffer between us and life. Because one of the things that leads us into poor financial decisions is feeling rushed. We get in a spot where we don't have a buffer between us and life, and we're having to make decisions in the moment because the car broke down, because the roof is bad, because whatever is going on, and yet we're having to make decisions. We don't have a time to shop for the best price. We don't have any of that opportunity that would allow us to steward our money well. And so the recommendation that I'm giving, 
after all this from Dave Ramsey, is that you fight hard to get three to six months worth of savings set aside. And, and this is what, uh, what I would call self-insurance. Uh, you buy insurance so that if a calamity happens, there is something there to help you out with that. Now, I can go to an outside provider and I can give them so much money per month so that they will cover me for that. And again, I'm not saying that's bad. I think we should do that in lots of areas. But when I get this self-insurance over here on the side, I can come to those deductibles. I can make those deductibles bigger, which makes my monthly payment smaller. Uh, so that if something happens, I've got the money here, I can pull, I can account for that. But I just freed up more money in my monthly budget that I can do the kinds of things that we're going to continue uh, to talk about here. Now, when we talk about adjusting uh, the deductibles and that kind of thing, uh, I'm not going to go in that in great detail here. Uh, but the lesson that Dave Ramsey gives in Financial Peace University in terms of you calculating the risk and going, okay, when is this worth it? When is it not? Some kind of insurances we all we need to have all of us all of the time. Some of them are wiser to have at different times in our life. I think he does a very good job in that material. Now, here is a piece where I've seen several couples, they start really well, and then with time, something begins to go wrong, and, and they don't wind up getting the benefit that they want from this. And it usually happens when they get a raise. Okay, so I get my three to six months savings, and when I'm making this much money, it works. But then I neglect that for, you know, five to seven years, and over that time, if I'm working hard and doing well in my job, I'm probably going to get raises as I go along. And all of a sudden, that's not three to six months savings anymore. So let me offer you a suggestion that I think is both financially wise and maritally wise. When you get a raise for three months, put that raise over here. Just put it over there up front. That way, it will be back in that three to six months saving domain. And here's why I think that is maritally wise. Let's just assume for the moment you get a $1,000 raise. Any of us hear $1,000 raise, and we each begin to have $1,000 dreams. And those aren't the same $1,000 dreams. And then we get to have a $2,000 fight uh, because we had separate $1,000 dreams. If, on the other hand, it was just assumed when we get a raise for the first three months, it was going to be going over there while we talk about what we would like to do with that as a couple so that we were more we dreaming than me dreaming, do you see how that would be incredibly beneficial and prevent a lot, one of the common kind of money fights that happens that turns the blessing of a raise into the curse of a fight? And then we wind up spending all that money on doing the makeup things that we do to get back together, and that's just silly. Um, now, um, another quote here from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he talks about charity. Uh, he's using uh, kind of the old English word for generosity. Uh, he's from across the pond and from like five decades ago. Uh, he says, charity, uh, giving to the poor, is an essential part of Christian morality. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If, 
Our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us. I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures exclude them. Now, C.S. Lewis is not one who is against enjoying things. His autobiography is entitled, the book he wrote about his own life is entitled, Surprised by Joy. Because he thought that Christianity was a killjoy faith, he was actually an antagonist against the faith until he came to the point where he realized the true and lasting and satisfying joy was in the Christian faith. He was not one at all against enjoying things. And so um, we're going to come to charity, generosity uh, in the latter part of this, but we ask the question, how do we... How do we prepare to buy the things that we would enjoy? If they're not bad, if it's okay for us to want them and have them, how would we go about that? Um, that is what, uh, what I call designated savings. Now, throughout the course of this, you've heard me say time and time again, the monthly operating budget is for normal expenses. And I know you've got to be asking the question, you know, Brad, we're not normal. we got lots of not normal expenses. Uh, when are we going to get to the not normal spending? This is where we are. This is for those things that, that just don't fit in the monthly operating budget. Now, at several points in the course of this presentation, uh, you have heard me talk about different things that have served my family well, that has been a blessing to us. I will tell you designated savings is the one that I put at the top of that list. It is the one that has been the biggest blessing in terms of creating unity and romance out of finances. And so with that said, we ask the question, what is it? Uh, designated savings, uh, it can be the same savings accounts that your emergency fund and your three to six months saving is in, but uh, basically you set aside things that you are saving for. Uh, some of them will be practical. Uh, we bought a house that was on the brink of foreclosure, so we know pretty soon we're going to have to put a new roof on it. Uh, so that's in our uh, designated savings. Cars always wear out, so a perpetual part of our designated savings is car fund. We're either going to make a car payment to ourselves and get to save the interest, or we're going to give a car payment to somebody else, and they're going to make money on the interest. That seems like a bad deal. I'm going to do that through my designated savings. Uh, those kinds of things that are practical. Also things that are fun and enjoyable. Vacation. Uh, the trip that I like to take my boys on before each year of school just to set that year up and kind of speak into their life. Uh, a piece of furniture or uh, a tool for a hobby or something like that. Those kinds of things would go in designated savings. So throughout the course of your month, uh, as you go through your budget and you go through the month, you are being good. If there's money that doesn't need to be spent, you're not spending it. So at the end of the month, there is as much left over as possible. Again, this is where I budget differently from many folks. A lot of folks in budget will tell you you need to have a zero-sum budget and it all needs to be designated before the month begins. That works for a lot of people. I'm not going to down-talk that at all. But what I'm saying here, what works better for me is if I have an assortment of goals and the better I am throughout the month, the more I have that I can put towards those goals. 
And so again, however much is left, my wife and I sit down and we decide how much we're going to put towards each one of those things. Now, uh, when Dave Ramsey talks about this kind of part of where we get into saving and that kind of thing, he, he, he asks a question, and when he asked it the first time, I was really intrigued, and then, to be honest with you, I was just disappointed with his answer. He said, when do you get to the point where you know you have turned the corner financially? It's like, I want to know that. And he tells this great, really long story about a turtle going up the hill and then riding down the hill on a bike. And, you know, it's like, this is when you're down there. Uh, don't get the turtle thing, but tell me, man. And his answer you have turned the corner when your money makes more for you than you make for you. And I'm sure that's great. Someday. We've been working this thing hard for like 14 years. We are disciplined with our money. I would say well above the average folks. And we're not even close. So, I'm going to ask the question and give us a happier answer, okay? And that's not at all to disparage Dave. I love Dave. His stuff is great. You should do Financial Peace University. But I'm going to ask the question and give us a little more encouraging answer. When do you get to the point where you know you have turned the corner financially? My answer, you have turned the corner financially when you spend last month's money on this month's extras instead of spending next month's money on this month's extras. When you get to that point, that whatever those anomaly expenses are, those kinds of things that we like to do that aren't a part of the monthly budget, and the money that we spend on that is not robbing from tomorrow to artificially inflate today, so when I get there I have left choices. Instead of that, if I was disciplined last month and had money left over, and that is what I used for this month's pleasures, can you hear the kind of peace the kind of stability, the opportunity for unity that you would begin to have with your marriage and family when you can make that simple change. And that's what designated savings is. It, uh, and so let me just offer a couple of examples. When, uh, when my wife and I were in seminary, and then right after that, uh, just starting into a 100% commission on donation-based counseling ministry. A, a couple of things that were in our designated savings. Uh, my, my wife is a history teacher, and she enjoys antiques. And she wanted an antique dresser for our bedroom. And so one of the things that we put in our designated savings, it was just a column and a notebook, and it was all in the savings account with the other stuff. It said antique dresser. And I wanted a fish tank. Um, you know, I like animals, and I'm a counselor, and it's kind of stereotypical, and it just fits, so I wanted a fish tank. Um, and so a fish tank went up there. And at the end of each month, uh, we would work hard during the month. We would not spend what we didn't need to spend. Money was left over. We'd come three to six months savings, and we would put, some, and we would put something towards antique dresser, and we'd put something towards fish tank. And it was a time when at the end of the month, we were investing in the things that were important to each other. We didn't go out and spend behind each other's back, and if one of us didn't spend, the money wasn't going to be there for the other, and it was some kind of competitive game. We were both disciplined and good throughout the month. At the end of the month, that money was left over. By mutual commitment, we invested in what was important to the other person. And I can tell you, not because I enjoy antiques, but when we saved for that, and we took 
uh, a Saturday, and we went to several different antique stores, uh, and I would hear her talk about the different things that she liked, and she would ask questions, and I'd get to know, and I can show you the dresser that's in our bedroom, and I can tell you the history about it, and the fact that I invested in that, and that I went with her, and that I got to know that, and I showed that because it was important to her, it was important to me. The value of that dresser for our marriage is much greater than the fact that it holds her socks. Uh, It is a memento from a season of our life when things were tight and things were hard and we were able to save and we look at that and it was something we did together for each other. And again, we got the fish tank. It's actually the only thing I ever bought on eBay. And you know it, um, but it was something that we look at, and it wasn't like, oh, we got the fish tank. Now we got to eat ramen noodles this month because you spent all the food money on fish tank. Uh, any of those fish get filleted? Uh, you know, it's not that kind of thing. Uh, you, uh, to use the example of a, a vacation, when you know going on the vacation how much you've got to spend, and you've planned it together, and as you save for it, part of what you did was talk about what you wanted to do on the vacation. Uh, This is one when we took our 10-year anniversary trip for our wedding. Uh, We had two plans. We had a plan A and a plan B. If we were able to save this much money, we were going to do plan A. If we were able to save this much money, we were going to do plan B. We saved this much money, we went plan B. Um, But going on that trip and not having money fights and just knowing what was there and each month as we talked about it, we could plan and we could look forward to it And it becomes a point of unity. It becomes a point of connection. It becomes a point of shared dream instead of we're going on this trip. We know we're being bad. We don't know how much we're going to have to pay next month on the credit card bet, but let's try not to think about it and just enjoy the trip. How's your food? Um, That's a really stinky vacation. On the other way, it's really nice. And so we talked about three to six month savings designated savings. The third area of savings is long-term investments. Uh, Basically talking here about retirement. Um, I am not the one to give you retirement investment advice. 401ks, mutual funds, that kind of stuff. You need to talk to a personal financial advisor. You need to go through that portion of Financial Peace University. What I'm going to give is just a couple of principles here to help you think about that in light of the other things that we've laid out. Uh, I would say it is good to prepare for a time when you will be less able to work. It's good. I know right now I am more fit and strong than I will be that if by God's grace I am able to live to be 70 years old. I need to be setting aside money now so at that point um, I am able to provide for myself. I think it's good to set aside money so at that season of my life when I have the most experience, I am most free to offer that to other people. Whether it be marriage mentoring like we have with our premarital program or other ministries that I would want to be a part of. That season of life when I have the most experience, the most education, I both know, most know who I am and what I would be passionate about doing. Let me invest in long-term saving now so that when I get there, I am most free to do with those years of my life. It, now beyond that, um, I'll give a ratio idea here that, again, this is a Bradism. Do with it what you please. Now, the basic idea we've been setting forth is tithe 10, save 10, live on 80. Uh, if you go through the different materials, that's kind of 
you know, your grandma could have told you that. You didn't need to come here for three hours to listen to me. Uh, grandma knew this. Grandma was really smart about money. Since grandma, somehow we forgot a lot of stuff. Um, but if you do the kinds of things that we talk about, uh, and let's say you get to that spot where you could, you could save 15. Here would be my recommendation. Instead of saving 15, give 12 and a half, save 12 and a half. Live off 70. Uh, if as you are 75, and as you can increase these, increase them together, uh, both your generosity uh, and your giving, uh, I think that is, uh, I think that is a, a general, not wisdom principle in terms of like Proverbs or something like that. It's something I would invite you to consider uh, with your family. So now we move from financial freedom to spiritual freedom. And oftentimes when it comes to talking about finances and character, as you've heard me say, we often talk about those things as if the only relationship that they can have is bad. Uh, that if we talk about finances and character, we talk about greedy people and elite people. And um, here would be my contention. What I do with my money is going to inevitably reveal my identity. Wherever I put my sense of purpose and worth is going to be revealed by how I spend my money. And so, by being intentional with my money, I can shape my character. And that's all we're talking about here, is how can I, with my money, live on mission as a child of God so that my life is being spent for the advancement of His kingdom. And I think Randy Alcorn does a very good job in his book, Treasure Principles. If you've not read that, I highly recommend it. Uh, he gets us started when he says, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. I would say it this way. We are most like God when we are giving, and giving begins with contentment. And so that first virtue that we're going to look at that is there for spiritual freedom, personal character, that we can, that our finances have a strong impact on, is contentment. Again, we are most like God when we are giving, and giving begins with contentment. Uh, a verse that we're probably familiar with, whether we could find it in the Bible or not, uh, is First Peter, I'm sorry, First Timothy 6.10, where it says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we usually get into that and we go, money's not the root of all evil, it's the love of money and that kind of thing. But if that's all we do with that verse, I think we miss something really important. I'd like to flip the verse and ask us to see the light side instead of just the dark side. If the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, then contentment is the root of all kinds of virtue. If being ruled by money and what it can give is the kind of thing that leads me into all kinds of evil, then being satisfied with the very basic things that God gives in relationship and just having contentment, that is the kind of thing that sets me up for virtue and character in the way that God wants to breathe into my life. And the lie that we're all prone to believe is that, that we can make our life better by adding things to it. Uh, that, was, that was really what Satan did in Genesis 3. 
Adam and Eve, content in the garden, no sin. And he comes up, and in the form of a question, he introduces discontentment. Wouldn't you like to be able to define good and evil for yourself? Don't you think God's holding that out on you? That's what this fruit would do. Come take it. I don't want to be able to do this. Let me just introduce discontentment. And the human race has never gotten over it. And so contentment um, is what we, what I think we should strive for most. And this is where even if our expenses are not in and of themselves sinful, I would encourage us uh, to ask ourselves, am I buying this from a place of contentment? I will tell you, I am, I am a competitive person. In anything I do, I want to win. Uh, it just, it just, it's part of who I am. And so there are plenty of purchases that I walk into, and I can feel that sense of competitiveness. Whether I've seen something really nice that somebody else has, and I just want to have something as nice as that. Or it's for my kid's ball team, and I, I, if we had this, then we could really you know, stick it to the other. You know, it just, that sense of contentment is not there. It is more competitiveness. And I don't think there's anything wrong with the kind of purchases that I have in mind when I say either one of those things. But I think it is very wise and safe for me to be leery of a purchase that is not being made out of contentment. Um, because of the kinds of evil that that would lead me into. Now, to move us into the second virtue, we'll pull from Randy Alcorn again. Um, he says, if your treasures are on earth, that means each day brings you closer to losing your treasures. He who spends his life moving away from his treasures has reason to despair. He who spends his life moving towards his treasures has reason to rejoice. So again, here's, here's my restatement of that. Temporal investments generate fear. Uh, eternal investments generate peace. If if I'm invested in things that are going to stay here and every day takes me closer to death where I will leave those things behind and that is where my heart, that is where my identity is, that's what I'm wrapped up about, that's what I get up for in the morning, my life is going to become progressively dark. Because even as I win, the sense of dread of losing it just becomes greater. If, on the other hand, what I am really about is eternal and every day takes me closer to that, then I can enjoy these things for the types of pleasure that they can give and not feel bad about that at all. And so here is the virtue that I think we're setting up. Uh, it's foresight. When, when I make eternal investments that allow me to view this through a lens of peace, I can think more clearly about what's coming ahead, and I can make better choices in those areas. I can express foresight. And there's two kinds of foresight, and this isn't new material, this is just assimilating some of the things that we've already been talking about. 
Um, but there's two types of foresight that I think this allows us to set up for. One is to prepare for expenses that we know are coming. Uh, that's, what, uh, that's what designated savings uh, and the uh, long-term investments, the retirement, was about. We know those things are coming. My house is going to need a new roof. Uh, by God's grace, if I get to live long enough, I will retire. I know those things are coming. It is wise to prepare for those. If I'm going to express the virtue of foresight, I would prepare for those things. Uh, the second area that I can express foresight is for those expenses that I don't know that are coming. That's what the emergency fund and the three to six month savings were about. Okay, I know Murphy's Law is going to happen. Uh, you know, Murphy's like the coolest guy ever. I mean, he's everywhere. Uh, but it, something's going to go wrong. I don't know what it is, but I want to have funds set aside for that so that when I get to that moment, I have the freedom to make wise decisions. Now, what I think allows us to show this kind of foresight is when we recognize that we are stewards of the things that God has given to us instead of owners. And let me offer uh, an illustration that I do not recommend trying at home. Imagine you take a $100 bill. Uh, my oldest son is eight. Uh, and so you, 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 for some reason, you, you need both hands and you say, can you hold on to this for like two seconds for me? And you do whatever you need to do and you ask for it back. Uh, at that point, not much beyond two seconds, it is probably safe. You can at least catch him as he is running uh, in that time frame. Now, uh, if completely foolish as I might be, if I went to my son and I said, I want you to hold on to this. I want you to be my banker. And at some point, I'm going to come back and ask for you for like in a couple of weeks. He holds on to that longer. He owns it. it the emotional attachment is mine. Uh, it, and I think that's a good picture of who we are. The longer we hold on to something, there is this natural migration of our soul to view us as the owner instead of a steward. And the question of a steward, you know, the question that we have to keep in front of ourselves if we're going to hold on to this mindset, why was this given to me? God gave me this for what purpose? Uh, and as I answer that question, that tells me what I need to do with my money. And I would say the vast majority of the time, uh, I stop short of saying always because I don't like to make those kinds of statements, but the vast majority of the time, bad financial decisions come from asking bad questions. Can I afford that monthly payment? I mean, could we work that into our budget? I mean, does it fit? That's a bad question. What did God give me this money for? Uh, what is it that he intended to accomplish in and through me uh, as having blessed me with this money? So to move into the final virtue, uh, we'll hear from A.W. Tozer. He says, Abase a thing as money often is. It yet can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. Don't you love the old English? Uh, it can be converted into food for the hungry. 
and clothing for the poor. It can keep a missionary actively winning lost men in the light of the gospel and thus transmuted itself into heavenly values. Uh, Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ immediately Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. And so the final virtue is generosity. And here's my definition of generosity. Generosity is the result of realizing what will last, which is the souls of men, and what matters, the glory of God, and living your life accordingly. If I realize what will last, the souls of people, and what matters, the glory of God, and I live my life accordingly, generosity will take care of itself. Um, And that, I want you to hear that as a form of protection. It's not a bar to live up to as if, you know, if I give 10%, if I give 15%, as if generosity was somehow about a percentage. I want you to hear it as a form of protection. Because realize this, when I live with my mind set on what will last and what matters, all of the silly things, uh, vanity or chasing after the wind, as it calls it in the book of Ecclesiastes, that Satan would use to disrupt my life, I begin to see through them for the foolish things that they are. They lose their appeal. Um... It's when I become distracted from what matters and what lasts that all of a sudden those things seem really appealing to me. And so generosity is not just about what I do for others. It's also about how God protects me. Um, And I think another way that can be very helpful to, to put on generosity is to think about generosity as being larger than finances. And if generosity with finances is hard for you, again, I admit it is not the strong suit for me. It is one of the areas that I struggle. And one of the things that I, at least for me, I found helpful in growing in that is the more I push myself to be generous in other areas of my life, uh, my time, my talent, uh, my interest, uh, my influence, let me be generous with those things and see the way that God uses it to see the kind of blessing that it brings back, the kind of deeper and more satisfying joy that I get from that than I would get from anything else. And I begin to place other things in that investment. And I go, why would I not put my money there if this is what's going on? Uh, And so in that sense, if you live like a missionary, thinking, my context of relationships, the talents and interests that I have, the... Uh, that what time do I have that I can give? Who am I already interacting with that I could leverage? If I live like a missionary, it will become increasingly easy to give like a missionary. Uh, and that, that is how we want to live, being on mission uh, for the glory of God. Uh, now, one final quote here uh, from John Piper. He says, The reason the use of your money provides a good foundation for eternal life is not that generosity earns eternal life, but that it shows where your heart is. 
Again, being generous doesn't earn us points with God. You know, God's not wringing his hand, needing money, going, look, if you can just give this much, then you'll be like cool with me and stuff. God, that's not, we don't, we're not generous to earn heaven. Being generous shows where our heart is. Generosity confirms that our hope is in God and not in ourselves or in our money. And so I'll give you two paradigms that hopefully in light of everything else that we've said will just kind of bring those pieces together where you go, this gives me some good handles for what we've been talking about. I'm going to live my life in one of two ways. Either I'm going to love God and love people and I'm going to use money to serve them. Or I'm going to love money and I'm going to use God and use people to obtain it. Those are the options I've got. I can love God and love people and I can use money to serve them. Or I can love money and I can try to use God and use people to obtain it. And again, that's tempting for all of us. And here's what I hope that you've gotten that would allow you to increasingly put your life in this paradigm. Here's what I hope you've gotten from these five chapters in this seminar. First, I hope you've gotten the tools and concepts to effectively manage your marital income. Again, if you're somebody who says, I I don't know what a budget is, or I've tried this in the past and it just didn't work for me, I hope what you got was an understanding of why the other approaches had not worked for you and picked up a tool, whether you use the precise tool that we give or whether you use something like it that fits your family better, that you got the tools and concepts that you can do to create a budget that will allow your money to serve your family well. Second, I hope that you've gained an understanding of how interwoven finances and marital unity are. I hope you begin to see where money and marriage are not two words that we have to say together and look down and go, can we not talk about that? Um, Can we just avoid that subject until later? I hope you begin to see those two things fit together in such a way that marriage and money can go so far as to be romantic. The way that we invest our money, and not just invest in terms of like 401k, but what we do with it, what we spend our life on, is can be something that draws us together. And third, I want you to have a passion for leveraging all of your life, finances and everything else, for the glory of God. Because the stat that we gave in the first chapter where it said the number one cause of marital dissatisfaction and divorce is finances. I hope in light of what we've said, you can begin to hear where the use of money, the way a couple manages it, yes, it can and often is the number one cause of marital divorce. But when we do it in a way that honors God, it can become the number one source within a marriage that draws and protects the unity of a couple together. Why? Matthew 6.21 Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When a couple says, we are going to take our treasure and we are going to manage it in the same way, for the same purposes, for the same heart, and we are going to get behind that, then as that, what we do with our treasure, shapes our heart, it is going to be something that draws us together 
in a way that we say, this has been wonderful for our marriage. Again, we admit that's not easy, and so we would be foolish not to pray uh, for God's help as we seek to implement these things. Uh, If you would, pray with me. Lord, we come to you. We thank you for all of your good gifts. Lord, we recognize that your best gifts are free. The best gifts are Jesus. The best gifts are those that you've brought into our life that we share relationship with. And Lord, we ask that you would give us such a value for those things that whatever you call us to do with our money right now, whether we are sacrificing to get out of debt, whether we are uh, saving for an important expense, whether we are giving in order to be generous, Lord, whatever it is that you might ask us to do with our finances, that we would have such a sense of the good things that you have done for us that we trust you and we feel the liberty of heart and emotion and mind to do that. Lord, we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.